My name is Brigitte, and I love myself, my daughter, my family, the world, humans, the planet, my ancestors, and the ocean. Mm. Beautiful. Podcast. This is Alexandra Loves, and I'm here with my furry cosmic guardian, Cyrus and Bisu, joyfully coming to you from the moon garden where wisdom is nourished, awakening is embraced, and fun is encouraged. Welcome all. We are back with more episodes. Happy 2023. I hope this year will bring you love and happiness, and may you and all your relations be in peace and health this year. We're jumping right in today. I met this firecracker of a woman when she asked me to present at her disruption on conference a few years ago, and it was so amazing, so powerful. Friends, I love what she stands for and how she does her thing. And we need more women like this who are creating equity and awareness on behalf of our sisterhood, especially for women making business in this modern marketplace. But business is not all that she's about, and you'll find out more about that in the episode. I'm inspired by the way her cultural journey has influenced her work in this world. Bridgette is an international speaker and social impact business coach. Bridgette's mission is to help coaches, healers, and experts who care about racial and social justice to scale their sales and impact with integrity, equity, and inclusion. She is committed to raising awareness around coercive marketing and sales practices in the coaching and online business space and disrupting harmful practices that disproportionately affect people of color and other people with marginalized identities. She creates inclusive and engaging events that inspire and connect business leaders with widely diverse backgrounds from around the globe. I know because I've been in them and I've attended. <laughs> Her Speak to Scale framework helps experts increase online visibility and share their story and offers an authentic way that connects them with ideal clients and gets sales flowing. Bridget founded Embrace Change as a social impact business entity that pays for 20% of revenue into opportunities and sponsorship for black indigenous people of color who are entrepreneurial leaders changing the face of how we do business. Bridget donates her time pro bono to support equitable collaborations and authentic human connection across diverse communities. She is committed to service before sales and her mantra is, when you focus on real social impact, the income will follow. I do love that. All right, friends, let's take a deep breath and welcome Bridget Ayuruso. What would it be and why? Um, I've been drawn to the owl ever since I became pregnant with my daughter. Really? Um, I started receiving just owl presence, energy, and feeling really attuned to the owl. I wound up placing many owl objects in her nursery. And I've come to learn it's a very important symbol of the Taino, which are the Arawak from the island of Boriquen, which is formerly Puerto Rico, colonized Puerto Rico. Yeah. And so an owl for me, in the most basic sense, symbolizes um, wisdom and connection to something deeper and wiser. And the idea of feeling alive and safe and aware at night in the darkness and in the shadows when everyone else is asleep is really intriguing to me. There's just a lot mm. there that feels really 
symbolic and important. Wow. I, I did notice that in one of your pictures on your website, there's an owl sitting on your shoulder. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. I love that. I, um, I have a few owls in here, uh, myself and it's, I love that you're talking about like this owl sitting in the darkness mm-hmm. <laughs> because I feel like, uh, that's such a theme for the time right now that we're in is, mm-hmm is engaging with like these things that we either didn't see before or don't, or don't want to see. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And the owl kind of symbolically having its eyes wide open and alert and with clarity through the darkness and seeing in the dark. Uh Um, And I remember as a kid, always associating owls with obviously something Halloween or spooky, but in my evolution as an adult, just realizing for me, owls feel very comforting. Yeah. 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 I, I feel that. Um, I, it's interesting how we have these things in our childhoods that, that mean something because we were told there means, you know, whatever they show up in a cartoon or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what, yeah. what people decide for us and tell us, and then we grow up and then boom, it's just like, a whole new understanding and relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. That's true of a lot of things. It, all of those Halloween symbols, I think, is something I think of because it was cartoonized and westernized mm-hmm. and um, turned into something spooky and silly. And most of the things in that Halloween symbology for for me now is deeply reverent and special and of great importance like witches now represent to me women that I know that I'm in circle with who are healers who are medicine women who are guides right um ghosts are no longer ghosts they're simply Mm -hmm. um ancestors or presences or you know guides from from other times or spaces or places it's just really interesting to me the um you know, I was raised in America. I live in Spain now, but just the American construct of Halloween is taking, you know, just so many beautiful indigenous, pagan, spiritual, um, meaningful things, right? Mm. Presences, people, and turning them into these kind of like cartoons, Halloween cartoons for, for mass consumption, which is, yeah. And to be standard and to be scared of it and to (laughs) To be be scared scared of so many things that you know, aren't necessarily scary and actually there to bring you life. Absolutely. All the scariness, the black cats, the bats, right? Like mm-hmm. the animals. Yeah. You know, why, why would we be scared of animals or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was interesting. You said that you, your heritage is Taino. Part of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm some part, um, Taino and then I am, um, predominantly European of a lot of different things. So I'm Italian from Southern Italy. I am Greek. I am Portuguese. I am Spanish. And I have a bit of um, Scottish ancestry, a bit of European Jewish. um, And then I have a bit of Senegalese and um, Cameroon and I believe Western Bantu. And um, I think that's about it. Were you aware of all of that when you were growing up? 
No, I just knew that I was Italian, half Italian, yeah. and my family insisted that we were just Italian, but I've since discovered that, yeah, we actually have significant Greek ancestry, which no one ever talked about. Huh. And then on the Puerto Rican side, you know, obviously if you're Puerto Rican, you know that you're mixed with Spanish. Uh-huh. And so I knew that my grandfather's father, my, I think it was my great grandfather was this like tall blonde Spanish man. Um, so I knew I had that part of my lineage, yeah. but I wasn't exposed as I am now to this awareness of just the rich tapestry and mosaic that is the DNA of Puerto Ricans because of the colonization of Borican yeah. and the bringing of the slaves from Africa and mm -hmm. in some cases Asia, but in, in my family ancestry, we didn't have that. Um, and then the you know the European mix of Portugal, Spain, and then some other places as well that that settled. So, you know, and then it's just one of those things that as I've come to unfold, I've just began to really understand my sense of just deeper connection with people from certain places. Yeah. Um, that make a lot more sense to me now. Uh-huh. When did that sort of unfurl for, or I don't know if unfurl is the right word, but when did you start getting inspired to connect with those heritages in a deeper way? I have to credit most of my journey around learning about my ancestry and the road from colonization to, to where I am and who I am. When I moved to the Bay Area, I really have to credit mm -hmm. the kinds of other entrepreneurs and leaders and educators that I began to build relationships with and connections with, just opening my eyes to the complexity and the nuance of cultural identity and belonging. And, you know, just I as a mixed identity and some would use the word mixed race, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a mixed person. I never felt that I fit in and belonged with white people, although I would gravitate toward white people because it's it's safer <laughs> and more um, privileged and more comfortable yeah. to, 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 to surround yourself with people of the dominant culture, but I didn't feel like I fit in. And then I was very um, connected to, and I felt comfortable with people of color, with Puerto Rican people, um, and still felt not fully like I fit in because I was mm. a little too pale for my Puerto Rican family, right? Wow. But then I was a little too spicy or loud or something with white people, right? With my white okay. family. Too and much, so I, too much. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm sure you know this, but you know, then you wind up realizing like, oh, that's what code switching is. Like mm -hmm. people use this term code switching and, and it's, kind of demonized. In fact, a, a woman of color that I'm in community with, I actually was really surprised when I read on her page, like how she was really de demonizing code switching. Um, and it's just something we do, you know, as humans, we adapt or we um, sh shift knowingly or unknowingly to the culture that we're surrounded by. Yeah. And it's just been a really interesting journey to see how I've begun to really understand and unlearn what is true to who I really am. Yeah. Um, and 
I have come to the realization that I was really toning myself down or attempting to behave in certain ways that are more palatable to people of the dominant culture. And because I'm an actress and I'm a shapeshifter, I was good at that. Like I could blend in and work it out and fit in with a certain class of people, even though inside I was just like, I'm not really like these people, <laughs> but I can totally be here and fit in, you know? And, and my mom is the person that actually, well, both my mom and my dad, my dad being, you know, a white European man, second generation Italian, kind of like drilled it into me as a kid um, in a way that could be deemed a little bit microaggressive toward my Puerto Rican family. Like you can go anywhere you want. You can be anywhere. You can fit in anywhere. Don't ever feel like you can't go anywhere and just walk in a room and be among any kinds of people. And the implication was like, don't let being half Puerto Rican worry you. Like you can, uh -huh. you know, and I, and I don't know. And, and part of it was also meant in a constructive way also, yeah. like, like you have the sovereignty and you can be anywhere you want. Yes. And, and then my mom also had that side of her, which was just like really gutsy and just really, you know, I remember going to fancy yacht clubs or hotels in yeah. places that were, you know, frequented by people of pretty significant privilege with like sailboats and a lot of money. Yeah. And my mom being like, we're going to go in and sit by the pool and order a drink. And I'm like, but we're not staying at this hotel. And she's like, well, it doesn't really matter. They're not going to ask. And we're just going to walk in. Like we run the show here, like we're staying here and we're just going to go straight to the cocktail bar and we're going to get a drink and we're going to sit by the pool. And if someone throws us out, they'll throw us out. And I was just like, you know, I was horrified a bit when I was a kid, but then as I got older, I really started to appreciate that spirit that my mom had. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Fuck, like, fuck it. Let's just go to this fancy ass yacht club and put on yeah. a white dress and go sit with these rich people. And, you know, meanwhile, my mom is first generation Puerto Rican. She's wow. tan and doesn't, she speaks English with a, a, a bit of an accent that people yeah. can pick up on. And she speaks English differently. Uh -huh. Right. She uh -huh. speaks um, colloquial English. Right. Yeah. Like, like, you know how people talk about black people's quote English being different. Well, that's a whole other conversation about oh, yeah. <laughs> cultural dominance and language acquisition. Like there are many, many ways of speaking English. Yeah. Right. Especially so when you go and less. tell other people they have to speak it and it's not their language. You kind of don't get to choose how they speak it. <laughs> Just saying, um, <laughs> if you don't know yet. <laughs> so she spoke English a little differently and she was just so like self-confident and self-possessed. You know, she was also a larger woman. Mm -hmm. She was fat, which yeah. is not a bad word, right? Mm -hmm. Except in American dominant culture, right? Yep. And so she was this loud boisterous, jokey, fat, brown, Puerto Rican yeah. woman with an accent. And we would just roll up uh, into these places, you know, I love and her. so I, you know, I, I spent enough time in those spaces of privilege and dominant culture to know how to operate there. Yeah. But if I had to be really straight up, uh -huh. like, there's a certain level of discomfort in both places, right? Like 
I love my Puerto Rican family. I feel really comfortable around loud talking, loud music, salsa music, mm -hmm. like a very different culture ethnically. But then there were parts of that that were like too much for me. Uh -huh. You know, so I've always been in that space of just like, huh, I'm a little bit of over there. I'm a little bit of over there, but I'm not really either. I'm my own person at the intersection of these two identities and that creates something entirely unique and it's taken me a really long time I'm 47 to be like this is who I fucking am like I oh, am yeah. I am pale and privileged and educated and I can put on talking ways and ways of being that can mimic and blend with the dominant culture which is very convenient yeah and I'm also Puerto Rican and I am very proud of my culture and it's not too much to talk in different ways and more loud and be more um, demonstrative in certain emotions right which is something that's been coming up a lot for me in my interactions with people of different backgrounds. Uh-huh. Do you mean like the expression of your emotions, it, like people don't know what to do with it? Yes. Uh -huh. I find that <laughs> I find that as I've gotten older and I've begin, you know, because I do a lot of work with people of different backgrounds, right? Uh -huh. I I work equally across the board with white women or white presenting women like myself. Uh -huh. And I work a lot with women of color who are black, indigenous, people of color, people that still use the term Latino, where we're moving towards decolonizing that term in, in our communities. I find myself noticing that I'm usually only too much to certain kinds of white people. And it's going to come across as like, oh, Bridget's saying white people are a problem. No, white people are, we're not a problem. Whiteness isn't a problem. It's the ways we've been acculturated to believe we should act and behave that are based on white heteronormative patriarchal cisgendered skinny pale blonde specific ways of being doing acting and speaking and i don't i fit so because i fit them partially on a visual level yes then when it doesn't fit who i am at a soul level energetically yes. and in my value system and how i communicate my thoughts and my beliefs and my truth it can be very jarring for some white people because i fly under the radar i i work with white folks i i have relationships with them they often become clients um but i've noticed that I am too much for them when I'm myself because they're not necessarily expecting me to be the way I am. I think if I were a bit more melanated or more quote, using the colonized term, look just a little more Latina, uh -huh. then they would perhaps be ready for me to be who I am, right? The way that I speak. And, yeah. um, you know, and I find with most women of color, and I don't want to generalize with all, but really most, and in particular, those with whom I find myself in community, I'm almost never too much. It's to the contrary. It's more like, oh, you feel different to me and I feel more safe in your presence than I do with other women who look like you. Yes. Like when you open your mouth, and we begin to connect and share what matters. I know you're not a white person, 
even though you look a certain way on the outside. And it's been a journey of even coming to to acknowledge that I'm still a person of color. Like I never understood those terms before I moved to California. I didn't know what it meant to be a person of color or to be indigenous or what does the word Latino or Hispanic, what does that really symbolize now understanding that uh -huh. those are terms that were put on those indigenous places, right? I just, you know, I just assumed like, because I look white, I have, I'm white, I guess I have to be white. And it was when I moved to the Bay Area and I had many, many friends who were women of color and I began to develop an online relationship with them after being with them in person, because that's how things used to work before COVID in the real world. You would go to a gathering at a entrepreneurial event. You'd make like you deep, rich, face face. <laughs> meaningful, deep connections and hug and kiss people. And then you'd hang out online after that. Yes. And you'd have this like really crazy, deep relationship, right? Which I still can get, I still get there with people online now without the first initial contact. But I remember getting an invite to this group that this incredible educator Louisa Duran was running and I was like and I remember thinking like I love Louisa Duran's group am I supposed to be like listening to this and learning as a white ally and then I reached out and I was like oh are you sending this to me to like study it or learn or send it to other women of color and and she was like what the fuck are you talking about hmm. I'm sending it to you so you can join the group oh and I was like but it's a group for women of color she's like am I confused? Aren't you half Puerto Rican? And I was like, yes, I, I am. Oh. My mom was born in Puerto Rico. And she's like, so you're a woman of color. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I was like, I, I don't understand, Louisa. Um, and it just was like this moment. And then I remember checking in with other women in the group. And like, I felt like I feel emotional. Even remembering back then, I was like, wait, I, I'm a woman of color. Like I get to be in this space where I feel like normal. Mm -hmm. I get to be here like I know I'm paler than everyone and I have privileges that most of y'all don't but I get to be here and be myself yeah and not code switch at all and then I checked in with like three I literally was scared to be in the space I like kept checking in with women of color I'm like hi I'm Bridgette I'm mixed race I'm half this and half that and they're like why are you asking me honey <laughs> wow. like you're here because you can be here you know and Wow. And then, and then that led to a whole other journey of like unlearning and relearning and getting funky and uncomfortable, like with all kinds of relationships and, you know, just noticing the experience of being in different spaces and um, just noticing where I felt a sense of belonging and where mm -hmm. I felt too much or not enough of something. Well, you know what? Thank you for sharing this. I got chills as you were as you were saying this. I also have been on this journey because I didn't grow up here and I didn't grow up with race identity. And even the idea of identity is something that I'm 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 just watching. I do a lot of like being on the outside, observing the dominant culture and the American culture here because I just didn't grow up here. I don't totally get it. There's a lot of bizarre things. There's a lot of things that that I think that we're just totally unaware of unless we really go into like a deep unlearning and um, but anyway, I, the idea of belonging is something that still I I've had like glimpses of that since I've been in this country, but mm -hmm. ultimately I kind of surrendered to maybe for the majority of this life um, outside of, you know, leaving home that I might sort of 
I, that might be a feeling that it is not as accessible to me as it was in my childhood. It, it feels like mm. it's, it's difficult to achieve for me. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I, I just don't I engage. It doesn't make sense. I always have felt like an alien, even in groups. I'm like, this is an awesome group. I love these mm. people. I'm still on the outside. So my question is, have you found, cause you were talking earlier about how you found yourself at this really unique intersection of who you are, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have this experience of belonging with this group. Have you, ha do you feel in most of your life that you find places to belong? Do you feel like you're in your, it, that you're mostly sitting in your universe of this unique intersection that you are? Like, what is this journey of belonging mm -hmm. as, you know, outside of the one you just told us? I mean, I, I have, for the most part, felt that I am, belonging enough in spaces you know i i make connections with other people easily i'm an extreme extrovert i'm very outgoing i'm very social i love people i love talking to other people i love connecting with people from different places and i've always made friends easily because i was an only child and i learned to connect reach out you know and i enjoy doing things with other humans. So I've always found that to be easy. What's shifted and what's become hard, <laughs> I was just having a conversation with an incredible woman that is gonna be my new, probably my new decolonization mentor um, about how when I've been on this journey of like listening and learning to other people who hold marginalized identities, who have felt othered or have felt not that they did not belong. And I've really started to just learn to believe them and to stop dismissing their experiences because mine is different because I'm mm -hmm. closer to the dominant culture. It's really shifted my perception of the world in a way that is, I can't, I can't go back. And it's a little bit hard because I have in the past, six years working in you know the online space with a goal of again listening to and learning from people who are very very different than myself yeah specifically black women indigenous women more melanated indigenous women asian people queer people people with different learning or neurological compositions than the standard quote right i have just begun to see how much easier it is to be accepted and to find belonging when you are closer to the dominant culture and when you're further from it it's it's a really different experience so it's really shifted my worldview and i've felt myself shifting along with it and shedding some of the behaviors i acquired to fit into the dominant culture and letting them go right so i'll give you an example of something i let go of um which was toning it down right like biting my tongue or not saying what i really felt because it would be too much and i would get in trouble right so i had really learned that way of being from being in catholic school in new york city and queens uh, yeah. from going to church uh -huh. from having jobs in dominant culture, white institutions, working in academia, 
I learned that I had to behave certain ways that were different than what I wanted to behave like naturally, which is boisterous, disruptive, loud, too much, right? Opinionated, passionate, big. Um, And so I started to unlearn those behaviors and then realized like now that I am in this more authentic, real expression of who I am, I am more difficult for people of the dominant culture <laughs> to palate often. Yeah. You know? And and what's interesting, like I've had this whole string of 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 situations with white women who said that they were on a journey of unpacking their whiteness and their white fragility, which white fragility is part of white fragility is the inability of white people to accept and palate cultural ways of being and behaviors that are distinctive from the dominant culture, right? So something, and then there's microaggressions which come out of that, which is like a white person thinking that a black woman or a a, quote Latina woman or- Doing something to them. Is doing something to them or is dangerous, for example, because they're passionate or because Mm -hmm. they're speaking in a way that's distinctive or they're expressing themselves in a way that's distinctive, then they're intimidating, scary, or dangerous, which then leads us to- discrimination and then systemic oppression where black and brown bodies are actually harmed because of our whiteness and our inability to be exposed to things that are different than what we are comfortable with, right? So I've noticed this coming up for me, of course, at a different level, but again, it's because I look white enough, they expect me to behave a certain way. And then when I'm culturally and different in my communication and my ways of being it's jarring and yeah. then you know they'll 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 say at first like I love everything about you they'll follow me hear me speak hear yeah. my truth you're amazing you know and then they want to invite me to a summit or collaborate with me and then I I'm too Bridget I'm too myself yes because I'm like that too to a fault. It's not a show. <laughs> this is really who I am, you know, yeah, yeah. and I don't shape shift anymore. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, you're scaring me or that was intimidating. And I'm feeling scared of you. And it's you're like me in the eye for too long. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> well, how, how is it that you're now scared of me? And it's because I've triggered your like white body fears, your white body supremacy fears, because you're not used to feeling or being around things that make you feel a certain way. And, you know, so much of dominant culture is about suppression and behaving and controlling and dominating people so that people can be controlled. Like you cannot have self-expressed people who are passionate, who speak their truth, who run around and do things according to their own terms and have a functional capitalistic controlled society like the one that we have. It just doesn't, it doesn't work like that, right? You need people to kind of be uniformish and follow certain rules and behave enough to move them and use them as you see fit. And mm-hmm. when you break out of that, it's very disconcerting for people. It's really mm-hmm. hard for them. And, and then, you know, I've just had a lot of difficult conversations as of late and just realizing, like, just having this awakening of just so much respect and admiration for Black, Indigenous, women of color that hold space for this work of unpacking whiteness. Because I also have that part of myself. Yeah. And I have done work on it and have the realization that I'll work on it for the rest of my life, which is again, another thing where I find folks will 
tip their toe in the water of doing like DEI work or anti-racism work or decolonization work. They'll take a class, they'll do a few coaching <laughs> sessions. And then it's like, oh my God, this is icky and owie and uncomfortable. <laughs> and I can just, goes. <laughs> and I can just say I did it. And now I can virtue signal that I'm okay. And I'm all done. Oh, and it's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> like, I think Trudy LeBron says that if I'm not mistaken, she, Trudy mm-hmm. coined the phrase, like, that's not how it works. Uh-huh. And it's very unfortunate, but you know, white folks, myself included in a, in a, in a, in a couple of iterations earlier of my journey, we are not available to sign on for things that are disc- uncomfortable and, and, and messy and um, trigger all sorts of feelings of shame, guilt, all kinds of wicked emotions that are just bottled up inside of us that we've held on to forever. And the truth of the matter is the work that's needed to heal this planet, the work that white people need to do, not because every white person who's born today is directly responsible for colonization and slavery and systemic injustice. It's because we live in the society that we benefit from those things having happened we get different opportunities and we get to operate in the world differently as a result of those things. We have work to do to reverse it. And the, the reality is that the only thing that will reverse systemic oppression is white people doing the work. You know, black and brown indigenous people can labor and do and try to do all the things they do, have been doing the education, the awareness building, the coaching, but they can't actually change the system. <laughs> Because they didn't make it. I'm telling you, this is why. So we did the, we did the unconference a few years ago. Yeah. And at that time, so I've, I've always worked within women's guiding women, women's empowerment, but I've always also talked about race and identity because of my experience here. And during that time, like right before we did that conference, um, people started really wanting to hear what I had to say and then start paying me. So a lot of my focus was anti-racism. I always look at things from a spiritual perspective and all of it has to do with becoming who you really are. And that's the unlearning and the relearning. And that's who are you really like find your people that's understanding what civilization is dominant culture, all of that stuff. I, yes. I was teaching all of that stuff and we did on conference and then I did summits and, and panels and all sorts of things, but it did get to a point where I don't even remember what I was reading. It, it wasn't, I was, I, it might have even been a meme, but it was very clear about how this is, this is the work of, of white people to do. They have to dismantle the system. And I was like, I knew that, but I didn't like receive it. And, yeah. way, and after that, I was like, oh, I was like, I don't, I was having trouble with teaching yeah. anyway. I had a lot of great students and, and people consulting with me. I like, I have not, no problems with them, but th- there was like a certain amount, maybe like a third of the people who were literally there mm. to take off a box. Like, yes. oh, I took Alexander's anti-racism journey. Exactly. Okay, oh, I had yeah. one session. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've done this work and I'm like, uh, you know, and I'd see some of their posts about like the work they've done and everything. And, and I just, you know, or communicating in a newsletter. And I realized, and it was a tough realization for me because there's some part of that work I liked. Um, I realized that maybe this is, this is not something for me. And, and I'm not saying that, that women of color should not, should not do that work. I'm not saying that. I just realized that for me, um, my heart couldn't take that Mm. aspect of that work. Mm -hmm. 
So I still do that work in, in some senses, mm -hmm. like I still consult and stuff, but it, I don't put that focus out there because I really did have an inbox full of white tears. I had inbox mm -hmm. full of people who, like you would follow me and be like, oh my God, all of this stuff. And then I'd say something they don't like, and then just guilt in my inbox. Like, mm -hmm. and then not you made me feel this way. Yeah. You made me feel this way. And then not yep. I'd be like, you should really take this class because what you're talking about is really right here. It's and then not what it's about what's yep. about and then not then there's the whole resource thing like you, you're taking up my time my space you want my energy but you're not willing to invest yes. in learning to get through this hurt that you're feeling and you're putting on me right now you know so yes. like, i was like i don't I, I hats off to all of you who are doing doing this work but for me i was like my heart literally um you know i was going i was starting to feel like i was going back into i, I experienced identity crisis around race and honestly self-esteem when i moved mm -hmm. to this country and i felt like i was starting to go there again and mm -hmm. and questioning my idea i know who i am i'm alexandra there's so many things i identify as before mm -hmm. i even get to race this thing that right. was made up yeah that's how i came into this country and then yeah. you know now at that point in my life i was like starting to go into that place again where i was like well i have to identify this and it has to look this way and, and all these people say this and I, you know i'm beholden to to this group over here and i was like fuck this shit yeah this is literally just for me personally yeah being in this field was i was feel like i felt like i was getting colonized again <laughs> yeah it's exhausting i i honestly just hearing you say that i actually cannot physically connect with what it would feel like to be a melanated human, however they identify, and work with white women with this exhausting experience I've had in this whiter, whitish body. Like right. it's so, it's so taxing on me. And I've had my own indigenous ancestors ask me to slow down and all but stop doing this work because I approached it as a white bodied person. Like this okay. is my labor. This is my reparations. This is my responsibility to fix the wrongs of my people. And then I was still coming at it from a place of like saviorhood and guilt, which is another white trait that we're gonna go out and fix things and save things. And in this case, I wanted to fix my own people and save us right from further harm wow. and harming others and harming ourselves. And then at some point working with one of my indigenous mentors, Marita Esteva, my ancestors kind of checked in with me and was like, what if your own journey in this is just your own healing, healing your own trauma, your own intergenerational lineage that has been passed on to you from the things you experience from the different sides of your family, right? Because one of the things that people don't understand about healing around racial justice is that everybody was harmed and continues to be harmed by racism. Yeah. discrimination and marginalization and systemic oppression. Yeah. White people don't necessarily understand how it is directly harming them because yeah. they still benefit from the system. So yeah. there's a funky duality mm -hmm. that white people are both harmed by and benefit from the system, but it's how we define benefiting from that system. Usually it's benefiting financially in terms of privilege, power, access, wealth things that are what we deem as successful in a westernized colonized society yeah. whereas people who hold marginalized identities 
Some may benefit from the system when they have proximity to whiteness or the willingness to shape shift to tolerate the dominant yeah. culture. Oh, yeah. They can I have have some. <laughs> they'll have some level of benefit, but not the same. Yeah. And then there'll be other scenarios and contexts in which they'll be absolutely treated differently in that system, yeah. discriminated, marginalized, or harmed directly, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the example of a Black person getting killed by a police officer for jogging yeah. or asking someone to clean up after their dog, which are things that white people get to do or having a barbecue or, you know, just things that yeah. white people do or even do at a level where they're doing something wrong within that and they don't get in trouble. And then a black person can be doing something lesser. Yes. Right. Like accidentally walking through a gate into the wrong pool or something and yeah. they'll get shot. Right. So we have these very distinctive experiences and levels of impact in this society based on the color of our skin just because of what we've learned and the work of undoing that is so difficult and heavy and when we really talk about the truth of what it is to do the work people want to run from it because it doesn't always feel good now there are ways to find more pleasure and embrace the discomfort of unpacking whiteness, of activism. There's pleasure activism. There's listening to Resma Menachem's book around your grandmother's hands. There's ways to learn to relax, to get safer, mm -hmm. to find more joy and connection in the work of unpacking whiteness. But that is something that needs to be guided. And we need help to do that work. And white people are not often, now not all, but some are not aware of or willing to understand that by investing in and doing the work to heal our whiteness, to heal our supremacy, to heal our fragility, we're healing ourselves. We are going to be happier people. We're going to be less perfectionistic, less non, non, less, less judgmental, yeah. less biased. We're going to be less horrible to ourselves. And therefore, we'll also be less harmful to others. And so it's a win, win, fucking win across the boards yes. when white people invest in doing the work to unpack whiteness. But the shame, the idea that we can't be good, well-meaning people and still cause harm or still be responsible for doing this work is where we get stuck because oh, we've been so, so acculturated to believe we're supposed to be righteous and good yeah. all the time. And we can have good intentions and we can still cause massive harm in the world. Yeah. Silence causes harm. Yeah. Pretending to be kind words and sweetness when someone else is being harmed is harmful. Not following through with something that you say you're going to do or support. Causes yes, white, white duplicity. Activism, yeah. Duplicity, like this thing that I just experienced with this quote, conscious, kind white woman who thought, I, who told me I was the greatest thing since apple pie and gravy. And then suddenly I was scary and intimidating to her. She was scared of me because I spoke my truth. Like that's duplicity, right? And there's all that going on at all different levels for people who hold different levels of marginalized identities. And, and the truth of the matter is we'll all be happier. We'll all feel better. We'll all make for a more just, collaborative, healthy, whole society if white people do this work. But it takes moving through the mud and the muck to get to that deep their awakening on the other side. And there are some people, 
many wonderful people that I know that I'm in community with that are in the mud, they're doing the work and they're signed up for it. And the conversations are happening and it's a lifetime of work, unpacking, decolonizing, realizing that the way we think and view everything from body sizes to ways of moving, speaking, everything is through a colonized lens of dominant culture. We judge and rate things and valuate things based on comparing them to the dominant culture, whether we realize it or not. That's why fatness is bad. Blackness is oh, bad. Yeah. Like I right? remember being in Puerto Rico the first time and Dominican Republic and they were calling me gorda, gorda negrita. And I was like, I knew the translation. I was like, they were calling me little fatty blackie. And I yep. was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, I was yep. like, what's going on? And I, but I was, you know, there's sort of like a mind twist because I was like, this, they're not making fun of me. They're not. And then it took me a while. This is especially mm. in Dominican Republic. Um, it took a while for, for somebody to like, you know, I found a local friend and, you know, they were helping me with Spanish and everything and kept hearing that in the background, like little, all these comments about like the bigness of my body. And I was way more round back then too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was just like, what is this? He's like, oh yeah. Like they like you. And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, it took me, you know, the other thing, once my friend said, this is another Actually, this is another Puerto Rican connection. My friend, I heard him talking about a woman that he thought was really beautiful. We were in a conversation about like something that happened. And he's like, oh, this beautiful woman, woman. And with his accent, he said her, her white nose. I thought he said her white nose. Mm. And I was like, why would he say her white? She had such a beautiful white nose to me. Like, I don't like that. I'm going to bring that up. So I brought mm. it up and I was like, what did you say about her nose? And he was like, say it again. And he, I heard him say wide nose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I couldn't even compute mm-hmm. that that is what he said because I had never, I was 38. Bridget. You've never heard someone say anything about a wide nose that was like complimentary. Never in my life. Versus derogatory. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's interesting. It's like having said that, even though our journeys are slightly different between, you know, people who have the melanin in our skin yep, and somebody who might not have as much melanin, we still are side, like we're side by side on this journey. Mm-hmm. Like whether we want to be or not, we all, ha- we all are taking ourselves out, rebalancing, like disseminating this dominant culture. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask, speaking of dominant culture, because we talked about different aspects, it, it could, you know, different aspects, including body shape, identity, and all this, not just mm-hmm. color, race. Mm-hmm. Have you run into this thing? And that is, and I hope I asked this question in a way that's clear. I noticed that I sometimes get a reaction from people who are really in that dominant culture that, like, the way I express if it's loud or assertive Mm -hmm. is masculine. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten this before? And I'm like, how is this mask? How is this? And I'm like, I understand we all have masculine feminine traits, of course. Right. (sighs) But I'm like, huh, is this, is it that it's masculine and you're uncomfortable with it? Or Mm. is it, is it that it's not masculine? You're just not used to a woman just being like, this is what it is. 
so this know. is a conversation that has just been in my mind and I've been reading so much stuff around masculinity and femininity that is so westernized and whitewashed the context and the what what masculine and feminine means is so different from culture to culture yes where this idea of of women feminine being soft demure quiet submissive is laden with colonizer culture if you go back and look at a whole spectrum of different indigenous african native american indigenous from the colonized america's cultures you will find quote the feminine of that cultural group behaving in ways that are radically divergent from what we consider feminine being the fire keepers or the fighters or the warriors or being a matri matriarchal culture where women are strong mm -hmm. now a lot of that was reversed again through colonization and reduced back to the more westernized construct of masculine and feminine which is what perpetuates this symbology and the ideology that men are there to be strong and to protect and to dominate and to control and to be organizers and leaders and get things done. It's a narrative that was created. And it's there's some truths to these Western feminine, but I see online so much of it. And it's just such gobbledygook. And I'm just like, no, these concepts of 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 masculine and feminine are not nuanced. And there's so much fluidity and an intersection and duality between masculinity and femininity all almost all indigenous cultures without exception had people who were um non-binary or transgender or gender fluid or and gender androgynous everyone thinks these are all these like newfangled concepts that these here teenagers on tiktok are getting all about these pronouns and it's like <laughs> what fucking fantastical version of history did you land into that you think this shit is new? So now I'm being Brigitte, right? Like snap the fuck out of it. Like transgender, gender fluid, androgynous people have always existed. They were just persecuted and fucking murdered until they disappeared for a long time. And now they're like, it's a little safer to come out not quite safe enough especially if you're black and trans mm -hmm. because if you are black and trans you are the single most likely person on the planet to be shot and killed just for existing mm -hmm. literally just waking up as a black trans person you have the highest likelihood of being murdered just for breathing that's the society we live in now but all of the identities that can be expressed on the spectrum yeah. existed always and forever until colonizers and colonized religion came yeah. and said that there were these two ways of being and these roles that were specific and structured for a very specific way of living and a very specific type of society that was gonna be hierarchical and controlled and dominated by a specific group of people. And we all need to wake the fuck up yeah. and stop the nonsense with the, this is liberal, this is progressive, this is woke. No, no, this is humanity. 
This yeah. is getting back to indigenous, native, basic humanity where we all started, where everything was nuanced and pagan and earth-based. When you go back and study native indigenous groups from all around the fucking world, you will see commonalities in everything Yeah, from the boats they made, the ways they built structures, the fucking symbology, the languages. If you look at native indigenous language from Japan yeah, and from Peru, Mm -hmm. And you listen to the way people spoke when you go back to the original peoples of Japan and Peru, they are far more similar than they are now because of colonization and world dominance and drawing lines and creating all these false divisions. And we are all very similar at the roots. Of course, we had different ways of adapting and living based on just the geography of the earth where we lived, because that just made sense. (laughs) These were natural (laughs) adaptations to (laughs) behaviors to to live and to survive. These weren't externally imposed structures and rules to behave or dress certain ways. You know, people ran around naked in certain parts of the world because they were hot, (laughs) not because they were evil or heathens, which is what the Christians came and told them, right? The dominant culture, the colonizer culture came and told people, no, they just were like, I'm not going to get heat stroke and die. Bridget, because I'm smart. Bridget, now see, this is something you and I have common, having common. We both grew up in the Catholic church. For me, I don't know fully what your whole story is, but for me, I know that I, um, you know, I was born not Christian. I was always a fight. I was not interested. I didn't like it. I, I just was not interested. Um, was forced to go all the way through confirmation. There were different ways of how much I was protesting, but it was just, I just was not, it just was not me. Um, and, and so this, but, but even with all of my protesting and rejecting, I found that there are still, there are still things even to this day, like I haven't, I haven't, you know, been forced into that since I was, I think 18 or 19. So like 20 years later, there are still things to this day that I'm, I'm decolonizing out of my system from Catholicism. It took me, it took me almost 10 years before I would engage with prayer ideas of grace or faith or God, because I was kind of taught that I, I thought like, this is something the Catholic church is colonized and, and they own. So I don't want to in- interact with any of these things that are actually quite natural for, for people, prayer and grace and, and all of the, all these things are, are not owned by Christianity. So did you come to a point, were you, when you were younger, were you like in the program and you're like, yes, Catholicism, or was there a time when, when you were just like, oh, you know, waking up, what was that journey Oof. like for you? I, well, I was not really ever in the program. I um, (laughs) got in a lot of trouble in Catholic school. I got in trouble in school as early as preschool, um, but I really started getting in trouble in Catholic school and speaking out and misbehaving. And I was bored with the way that things were taught. And then I remember it hit a really bad breaking point when I was around nine or 10. And they kept trying to, drill into us this indoctrination around like gay people being uh-huh. evil or being pedophiles. And I remember 
the tipping, it was the breaking point because I had been in trouble so much and I'd spoken back and I'd spoken up and I just refused to participate or collaborate with a lot of the things that they were trying to do. I just was constantly disruptive, right? Mm-hmm. I remember standing up in class finally one day when they were having this lesson on gayness and I was just like, that's it. No, I've had it. I'm like, this is fucking bullshit. Because my cousin, who I love dearly, who's passed away, and my godfather, he was very, very, very flamboyantly gay. And I, I just, he was my idol. I loved him. He was my favorite cousin. And he was in theater. And we just had so much in common, more so than other people in my family. And when it, this lesson became about him, like, I just lost it. And I was just like, wow. I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I want to go home. And they were like, go to the principal's office. And I was like, I feel like you're not understanding me. I want to go to the principal's office. I want to go home now. I want to call my dad and I want to go home. And they sent me to the principal's office, or rather I stomped off down the hall of my tiny Catholic school. Yes, you did. To the principal's office. And I, the mother superior was like standing outside because she could hear the ruckus. It's, it's a tiny school and she, very stern, pinched faced, blonde woman with a habit, which is the, the, the 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 the, doody, the doodicky that they wear on their heads and she just looks like she's so stern and so angry and I'm she's just like she's gonna scare me and I'm just like I am not fucking scared anymore I was just like I want to go home I want to call my father she's like well I've already called your father he's on his way and I was like good because in her mind <laughs> yes. in her mind I'm gonna get in big trouble and in my mind I'm like you're gonna get in fucking big trouble because watch how this one's gonna go down and so because my father also adored my godfather and my father was his godfather and they had a very deep connection and my father had spoken out in our family who's a catholic family about them projecting onto him that he wasn't gay and that he wanted to marry a woman someday and what and my i'd seen my father be disruptive yes at the christmas table one christmas when they kept going on and on about tommy's future wife my father lost it and was like just fucking shut up and leave the man alone he's gay just leave it, just stop this nonsense. Just love him. He's an amazing human. Just stop it. And so I'd seen my father like that. And I knew that I wasn't going to get in trouble this time. Mm -hmm. And so by the time my dad got to the school, I was just sitting outside the mother superior's office with a smug look on my face. And my dad's like, what did you do? And I was like, oh, let her tell you, you know, and she was, the mother superior was like, just went off on the teacher and stood up in the middle of religion class and started shouting profanities and being disruptive. And my father was like, okay, but what precipitated her behaving that way? And the mother superior was like, well, what does that matter? I mean, look the way she behaved. She cursed the teacher. And my father was like, but I just would like to know what happened right before she did that. And I was like, I can tell you what happened. And then I told my father what was said. And I remember my father's face kind of just calm and resolved. And then the mother's superior face with her arms crossed, just kind of waiting for my dad to like yell at me or say I was in trouble. And my father just calmly said, you know what, Sister Dolores, it looks like we've reached a place of impasse and this may not work out. I'm going to take Brigitte home today and we're going to figure out what to do, but it doesn't seem like this is going to be a good fit for much longer. So we're going to figure something out. And I got taken out of the fifth grade six months into the school year, like significantly into the school year. I did not finish my fifth grade in Catholic school. I was moved from a 200 person, tiny insular Catholic school with no black or brown people, but for one girl that had to go home because of the overt racism she experienced there to a school with over 2000 students 
of whom 70% were people of color, Black, Indian, Asian, Chinese, Korean, you name it. Um, kids from all over different parts of colonized South America, you name it. And I was just like, not even intimidated. I was like, this is fucking awesome. This is like the UN. And I remember just really like grooving into this experience of like, oh my God, I started making friends and I had a bunch of friends from India. And like, I was very curious and I loved trying different foods and they would like invite me to their table and they would like explain their foods. And I would like ask a million questions about their moms and how they cooked. And, you know, I just started to really understand like, you know, this is who I was. Like, I'm a person that I, of course, now understand why I crave that diversity because it's who I am inside, right? Yes. Coming back full circle to the beginning of our conversation, right? Because yes. I'm non-linear because I'm also indigenous and I don't speak in linear thank you, thank you, thank you. organized ways. Yes. <laughs> so it's like we've come full circle back to the beginning of the conversation, which is like um, I hold all these parts of the world in me. And I really feel this sense of like love and excitement for people from other cultures. I embrace now all the different ways of being and doing that other people are when they're not harming others, right? And so I guess to kind of tie it up, I actually realized that I no longer feel as safe and comfortable around people of the dominant culture as I used to. And I feel safer and I feel a deeper sense of unity and belonging among people of color. And it's not to say I don't have deep friendships and connection with white people of the dominant culture. I do. But there are people who have done their inner work to unpack. And I find that in the last year, I feel unsafe around many white people because of the duplicity, because of the kind words and the consciousness and the smiling and the spirituality. And then underneath it, it's just a lot of like bypassing and gaslighting and not acknowledging other people's experiences in a way that I find really harmful. And I said this the other day to a couple of women of color that I know, and I wanted to clear it with them if it was offensive. And they said it wasn't, they laughed. I said, I actually feel safer. If you were to put 10 women of color in front of me, black, melanated, indigenous, and they're like yelling at me and telling me, Bridgette, you did this wrong. This is what you said. I didn't like it. And you went like that. And then you did this. And it really hurt me because of this, this, and they're just yelling at me and telling me exactly why they're mad. And my nervous system feels so goddamn safe Hmm. when women of color just tell me straight out what the fuck I did wrong and tell me with passion and anger and feelings yeah. I feel rooted. I feel like I know what the fuck is going on. Yes. I feel like a sense of reality and humanity of like, oh, thank you. You're mad at me because I said some stupid shit. And I specifically said that. And you felt that I didn't say I should have said something else. And now you're explaining. And I'm so grateful when people of color correct me and tell me what the fuck is going on. When I feel unsafe is when I'm on the board of a conscious capitalist organization and everyone is smiling and has weird faces on. And then I have a weird dubious meeting and then I'm kind of not being asked to leave the board, but I kind of am. But I'm kind of like gently being coerced and gaslit off like I decided I wanted. And it's just all this manipulation and coercion, but it's happening so gently and so quietly. And then and then it's just so confusing. And then later on, I realized that I've been like upset, hurt, harmed 
but then I'm questioning myself, but they were smiling. They were using nice words. What just happened, right? And so now I've reached a place where I don't really feel safe around some kinds of people, not all, but I don't feel yeah. safe around when people are too spiritually quiet and conscious and they never get angry and everything's love and light always. <laughs> I get scared. <laughs> About the repressed beast behind that. <laughs> I do because later on it comes out in a funky yeah. way and I and then it's seemingly out of left field, but then I go, oh, dang it, it happened again. You know, and so it's just one of those things that, again, I've experienced so much of that this year. And of course, because I've been so blessed to have my own indigenous mentors and melanated mentors, I'm constantly with like, this is my journey. This is what I'm learning. These are my own ways of being that I'm unlearning and I'm being confronted by them. And they are triggering to me yeah. and they are teaching me. And instead of like avoiding it and avoiding the discomfort i'm like really swimming in the soup and engaging with it like what is this work for me yeah. what is the work that i need to continue to do within myself to continue to unpack my whiteness my ways of being that are still rooted in dominant culture all the things that i still have yeah. that i still need to move through and then again, going back full circle, is it my work any longer? And I don't think that it is to hold white women who are still in a place of fragility or denial or avoidance. I don't know that it's my work any longer to move them into a deeper awareness. It's been really exhausting and, many, and in many ways harmful to me on certain levels. I think it's my work more so than ever, which I've always done, to do my work to unpack to be less harmful myself to people of color and to continue to uplift and partner with and center the voices of other black indigenous people of color who are doing incredible work in the world mm -hmm. that I'm so grateful to. Like I really, I mean it so much when I say that like my life is so much better since I've been listening to and learning from indigenous healers, indigenous spiritual guides, black anti-discrimination, black anti-racism educators, like since I've been following five or six people who I'm going to name because I want people to know who they are, I am a better person. Like I've been learning from Maisha Hill for a couple of years now. I've learned from Tanya Rodriguez, even though she's triggered me terribly so. I've learned to go inside and listen to her when she says that decolonization work is painful. And that as white people, we have to understand that it's going to hurt and that we're going to lose things that we've held on to and had for so long. And that's the only way forward is to acknowledge that we're going to lose things. And that's OK. We have to give things back. We have to. Right. I've learned so much from um, Letty Sullivan, who's going to be my new mentor, Marita Esteva, Asha Ramakrishna, Eva Cruz Peña. There are just so many women of color out there from you, we've had so many conversations, right? Just when we can put aside our worldview and really tune in and listen and learn from black indigenous leaders who are rooted in justice, spirituality, decolonization, anti-racism work through the lens of making this world truly better for everyone, we are going to be happier. And if I just wish and pray that any white people listening to this will believe me, when I tell you that on the other side of the feelings, the pain, of the shame, of the guilt, 
of the responsibility of any of it. There's so much beauty on the other side. There's so much more gratitude and awareness for the world and what we have and what it can be when we can loosen our grip with seeing things only through our worldview and really listening to and learning to shift and spin the view and just move it away and try to see it from that other person's lens and really, really listen to them and believe them, believe the experience that they're having and how different it is from your own. And that it is exactly why we have to be able to do that because it's so hard for us to believe people of color, melanated people when they tell our, their truths because we don't have that experience. We don't know what it feels like to be treated differently because of something as specific as just the color of our skin. Yeah. It's just not something we know. And so it's, that's just my only call to action at this point is that dear white people, including myself, please trust the journey. Please don't give up. Please believe me. There's so much for you to gain in the work. It's not just about doing it because of obligation or guilt or to save the world. It's going to make you happier, Mm -hmm. more rooted in yourself with self-love and acceptance, and you yourself will experience less pain in the world by doing this work. And then of course, there's the, all the other massive impact that it'll have on other people you interact with to have done this work. But I think it's really important and we don't highlight enough that white people gain from doing anti-racism, decolonization, racial justice work through a spiritual lens. Yeah, We gain too, but we have to do the work and we have to go through the discomfort to get there. That's a beautiful and powerful blessing for this world. And, and that was my next question. And I'm in full... I'm in a full agreement with you. It's, I understand how it can be counterintuitive to so many people to be doing the work of anti-racism, to be looking to ourselves so deeply, um, to, to be decolonizing ourselves. It's, it's counterintuitive because it just, we're dealing with an ugly monster, Yeah, (laughs) you know, but also I think so many of us are born warriors. You know, we all yeah. have warriors in our in our ancestry, and that's what's very much alive right now. So, yeah. thank you so much for sharing that. And I just have one more question for you, Bridget. If the Bridget of twenty years ago were to walk into your dwelling and sit and talk with you, what would you tell her? Everything's going to be okay everything is going to be fine. Just trust. And you are just a great person. And you're going to realize someday how much that you think is important. And so many things that you worry about are not that important. And your priorities are going to shift and you're really going to start to see what matters. And it's going to feel so much lighter and so much easier. Just trust. It's going to get easier, not harder. Beautiful. Thank you for being here. Thank I, you for I really having feel me. Open and I feel so grounded talking to you and and the work you're doing in this world is critical. So, thank you for all that you've done and whatever it evolves into. 
Um, I'm just, I'm so proud to know you. Same. I love you, Mama. I remember our first conversations and we barely knew each other when we met on Facebook. And then we just literally just hopped on the phone very spontaneously one night and spoke for like, I don't even know, like an hour, an hour and a half. And I was just like, I really like this woman. I just, I mean, I barely know her. And we developed such a deep and rich relationship so quickly and so easily. There was just something there that was really powerful. So I appreciate you and the work you do and the way that you show up so much your work is really needed in the world thank you blessings blessings beautiful mama i'll talk to you soon ah wow thank you bridget thank you you know some of these recordings were done a few months ago and uh, i had time in between to kind of forget about them and come back to them and after listening to this, Bridget, I am so, so grateful that you are part of the sisterhood. Thank you for being you. Thank you for your fire and your passion. And I look forward to our next talk. And for all of you listening out there, please check out the show notes. That's where all her links are. Please find her, follow her, uh, join up in her sisterhood. Thank you for listening to the Woke Wisdom Podcast. Peace and blessings to all of you all of your relations, and I look forward to our next meeting. The original and healthy beats for this podcast were created by Quincy Davis. I put his info in the show notes. The Woke Wisdom Podcast was written, created, and edited by me, Alexandra Loves. It is a production of the Moon Garden Temple. And my guests, of course, they bring their own wisdom. If you resonate with anything you heard today, please help us spread these messages and help get the podcast growing by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It just takes a few clicks. Clickety click, clickety click, click. You can contact me or the podcast at wokewisdompodcast at gmail.com. And look, I used to read the disclaimer at the end of every episode. I'm not doing that anymore. It's too long. <laughs> if you really want to see the disclaimer, it's on our website or it's at the end of our very first episode, Orientation and Welcome. And if you're new to this podcast, I highly suggest you check that episode out. It's awesome. It kind of lays the land for what we talk about here and, and the way we roll. <laughs> so thank you, everyone. Be blessed and we'll catch you on the next one.